My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode four of our 12-part series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. So far in this series, we've talked about Marcus Aurelius's somewhat reluctant rise to the imperial throne and his surprising choice to turn down the Senate's offer of sole rule, instead choosing Lucius Verus as his co-emperor. We've also discussed the surprise offensive launched by the Parthian Empire on Rome's eastern border, and just how deadly the horse warriors had proven in the past against some of Rome's greatest leaders. Today, we'll see how well Marcus Aurelius, Lucius Verus, and the Roman generals serving under them do in the face of renewed Parthian aggression, and whether Lucius Verus will prove to be a wise choice of co-emperor. This episode will make a lot of sense, more sense anyway, if you've gotten the context provided by the rest of the series, particularly episodes 1 and 2, but feel free to listen however you like. Episode 1.4. What stands in the way becomes the way. The bad advice from the talking snake would have pissed me off the most. It's one thing for one of your experienced generals to blunder and lose an entire legion while attempting to do the right thing with a well-thought-out plan. It's quite another for it to happen after he was manipulated by a con man who plucked at his ego. The con man in question was Alexander of Abinutechus, a charismatic prophet who carried around a large snake who he claimed was the avatar of the snake god Glycon. Alexander's cult was all the rage in Anatolia in these days, and among his disciples he counted the Roman governor of Cappadocia, Marcus Sedatius Severianus. The Roman writer Lucian wrote an entire book on this guy, and he conned on a level that was incredibly impressive, considering the, you know, technological restraints that he had. Uh, he was the ancient equivalent of the televangelist who tells poor Americans that if they send him their social security checks, that they too can be rich or cured of whatever ails them. Only Alexander who we're told was handsome and charming, conned not only the poor farmers of his region, but even the upper crust of society. Cappadocia was a strategically important province on the border of Armenia, and Severianus, was originally from Gaul, was entrusted with it in part because he was considered a good military leader who had at least some experience with the small-scale skirmishes that had been the extent of Roman military operations for the last 40-odd years. When the Parthians attacked the Roman Klein Kingdom of Armenia in 161 AD, they quickly conquered it, installed their own puppet on the throne. Severianus was the man best positioned to respond to whatever the Parthians were going to do next. He likely could have held off the Parthian invasion of Roman territory while the Eastern legions, legions mustered for a counterattack, but in one of the strange stories that seems so common in the ancient world, he decided to listen to the advice of a talking snake instead. Glycon apparently told the governor, through his prophet, that if he acted immediately, he could win an easy victory over the Parthians. Severianus fell for it, and he marched into Armenia at the head of a single legion of just 5,000 men, which was the only force he could quickly muster. 
There, his legion was surrounded by the Parthian general Koseros and cut to pieces. We don't know exactly how this battle went down, but we should probably imagine a scenario similar to what we saw the Parthians using against Crassus' army in episode 2. It's probable that it was less of a battle and more of a slaughter, with the Parthian horse archers raining arrows down on the legionnaires, until their formations started to break apart in disorder. At that point, a charge of heavily armed and armored cataphracts and whatever infantry they had on hand would likely have smashed the faltering Romans to pieces. Severianus committed suicide rather than fall into Parthian hands, and his entire legion was killed, leaving Cappadocia almost undefended. After this initial coup, the Parthians quickly followed up with another attack. A separate Parthian army thundered into Syria, and the army the governor led out to fend them off was routed. The Parthians were now camped inside Roman territory on the western bank of the Euphrates River, within easy striking distance of the rich Roman cities of the Mediterranean coast. They wasted no time in attacking the small, undefended, undefended settlements on the periphery, carrying off slaves and loot. This is the situation Marcus Aurelius faced just a few months after taking the throne. Antoninus Pius's insistence on keeping his heirs in Italy and away from the postings, which would have provided them with practical military experience, had left both men unprepared for a military crisis of this magnitude. The Parthians weren't some small band of raiders harassing a few villages in the borderlands, but a fearsome warrior culture no less sophisticated than Rome's specialized in a form of warfare that had frequently left even talented commanders humbled. While Antoninus Pius had done nothing, the Parthian king of kings, Volagasis IV, had undone the divisions Hadrian had hammered into his father's kingdom, reuniting its often feuding nobles under his leadership and building a solid foundation from which he could conquer some of the Roman territory to his west. If Marcus and Lucius stumbled now, all of the eastern provinces would be in jeopardy. Marcus may have been unprepared, but as senior emperor... He acted decisively, rushing new governors to Cappadocia and Syria to shore up the local defenses while the larger Roman response took shape. It began the process Roman leaders had drawn on for generations, concentrating the empire's vast manpower reserves at the point of crisis to steamroll their opposition. As a man who spent most of his reign fighting wars he didn't want to be waging and dealing with crises not of his own making, Marcus had a surprisingly positive spin on setbacks. A few years after the Parthian War, he wrote in his journal, quote, Our actions may be impeded, but there can be no impeding our intentions or dispositions, because we can accommodate and adapt. The mind adapts and converts to its own purposes the obstacles to our acting. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way, unquote. The Parthians had thrown a war into his lap, and he'd much rather be improving the lives of his countrymen, but if they wanted a war, Marcus was going to give them one. He set about overcoming every obstacle in his path. While Marcus stayed in Rome, managing the affairs of state by imperial decree, he dispatched his subordinate co-emperor and brother by adoption, Lucius Verus, to personally oversee the Parthian War. As the junior imperial partner, and also a younger man of more robust health, Varus was considered a better choice to lead 
at least theoretically, the war effort. It's possible that Marcus hoped Lucius would grow up when faced with this crisis. After all, Lucius was 31 years old, but had had few responsibilities for most of his life. Maybe this emergency would cause him to mature. Under Lucius's nominal command, Marcus selected generals who had distinguished themselves in fairly small conflicts over the last few decades. Rome continuously rotated patricians and equites, the Roman equivalent of the knight, through command positions in the army, so there was always an experienced officer corps to draw on. But it seems the discipline and constant drilling of Hadrian's and Trajan's day may have faded during the peaceful reign of Antoninus. The last major conflict had been 29 years prior, when Hadrian marshaled a huge force to crush the rebellious Jews of Palestine. The last major war with an external power had been 48 years before, under Trajan. The Eastern legions had not acquitted themselves well during the opening salvos of the Parthian attack, so it's possible that they'd been left to go to seed. We're told that the legionnaires of Syria spent much of their day lolling about the bathhouses of Antioch, and apparently weren't doing much training. So after Marcus's new generals reached Asia, their first task was to whip the legions into shape and hold the line while waiting for further reinforcements from Europe. Marcus may have been determined to beat the Parthians, but it seems Lucius Verus headed to war only reluctantly. He did not make haste, instead making a leisurely tour of the provinces along his way to the front, stopping for a few days at a time to be entertained by the local elites. When he finally got to Antioch, he did not involve himself much in military matters, instead finding a pretty Greek mistress and demanding dispatches from Rome to keep him up to date on the performance of his favorite chariot teams. He spent his time drinking and watching plays and com comedians. It's likely that Marcus, hearing of his co-emperor's dereliction of duty, could only groan and go on shouldering the burden himself. However, Lucius did delegate well and developed a working relationship with Avidius Cassius, who took on much of the burden of the coming offensive. Cassius and the other generals were far more proactive than Lucius and quickly got to work. They would have been aware that talented Roman generals had suffered heavy defeats when facing Parthians in the past. The earlier generals had lacked a strategy for countering the twin hammer blows of the Parthians' exceedingly mobile horse archers and heavy cavalry. Trajan had largely sidestepped this problem because the Parthians had been weakened by a civil war and had never really managed to field a huge army against him in a pitched battle. But the legions were adaptable, and the Romans had been discussing the best way to beat mobile cavalry-based armies ever since. The Stoic philosopher and governor, Arian of Nicomedia, seems to have developed a winning three-pronged strategy. In 135 AD, a large tribe of horse nomads from the Pontic steppe, the Alans, invaded his province of Cappadocia. Much like Crassus had done during his disastrous invasion of Parthia, Arian used the two legions at his disposal to form hollow squares. The difference was that he recruited large numbers of infantry slingers and archers who could usually outrange horse archers, protecting the legionnaires from harassment. Second, he recruited all the cavalry he could get his hands on. With all three of these troop types working in coordination, Arian crushed the Alans and drove them back across the border. During Lucius Varus's campaign, 
against the Parthians. This strategy was again adopted, with troops drilling on the complex operation of rapidly forming into infantry squares. Their normal short swords were supplementing with pikes, which would face outward from the square on all sides. They also used their large shields to form defensive walls which could protect them from arrows. This formation, when intact, could repel even a charge of heavily armored cataphracts. Inside this square, slingers and archers would fire at any approaching horse archers or cataphracts, and the Roman cavalry would prepare to charge out when the time was right. In 163, a Roman army using this strategy drove the Parthian garrison out of Armenia and disposed of the Parthian puppet king. But by then, another Parthian thrust had conquered Oseron, another Roman client kingdom that bordered the two empires. But Marcus's commander in Syria hadn't been complacent. Avidius Cassius, a notorious disciplinarian known for crucifying troops that displeased him, had spent more than a year methodically whipping the lax eastern legions into shape. With the arrival of reinforcements from, the nor- from northern Europe, he and several other generals were ready to go on the offensive. They threw the Parthians back across the Euphrates and followed quickly on their heels into Parthian territory, capturing cities and driving their enemy out of Oseron. The organized Roman system, with everyone subservient to the emperor along clear lines of command, was showing its advantages. Volagasius IV had to cajole his semi-autonomous feudal underlings to bring their troops to battle. With the increasingly competent Roman advance and their string of victories, that was proving harder and harder to do. In 165, one Roman army captured the Parthian Mesopotamian provinces, while another, under Avidius Cassius, drove toward the Iranian heartland. There he faced down an army led by Volagasis. We don't know the details of this battle, but Cassius and his legionaries emerged the victor. Some historians have suggested that by this point, many of Volagasis' vassals were just refusing to rally to him, so he was probably outnumbered or at least couldn't really bring the full might of his empire to bear against Cassius. Cassius then moved on to sack the Parthian capital, Tessaphon, and burned its palace to the ground. A peace deal which largely reestablished the status quo, while ceding Rome only a small sliver of territory, soon followed, and the Romans began to pull back. Now you might ask, why didn't the Romans attempt to keep this newly acquired territory, as they often had during past wars? It basically came down to a cost-benefit analysis. In the past, some emperors like Trajan underestimated just how much manpower it would take to hold Mesopotamia, which was vulnerable to attack on three sides and prone to rebellion. The entire Roman Empire was protected by deserts, mountains, rivers, and the oceans along most of its front and required only 28 to 30 legions to keep it safe, depending on the era. It's likely that Mesopotamia would have required a minimum of another five legions and an equal number of auxiliaries to hold it. The Romans wouldn't have gotten enough tax revenue from the province to justify the expense. Additionally, Mesopotamia was already far from Rome, but it was in Parthia's backyard. No Roman had ever managed to seriously threaten the Parthian heartland, which was even further out beyond Tessaphon, and it was obvious that the Parthians would continue to contest Mesopotamia if the Romans tried to hold it. 
After doing the math, Hadrian had rolled back Trajan's conquests and using the territory to form client states. He, it appears that Marcus wanted to follow suit. Although there had been setbacks, the Romans' superior position and huge manpower reserved allowed them to adapt. Even Lucius's debauchery hadn't been able to get in the way of the institutionalized military proficiency of the patrician and equestrian commanders. But something big was about to change the Roman world forever. In some ways, this would be Rome's last easy victory. In the future, there would be little extra slack for incompetence or mistakes. Rome would be dancing on a fine wire. Thanks for tuning in to The Turning Wheel. In our next few episodes, we'll talk about the Antonine Plague that was about to tear the empire apart and Marcus's struggle to deal with the German tribes who tried to pile onto Rome when it was on its knees. Though inexperienced with war and reluctant to leave Italy, Marcus has to teach himself to be a warrior and maybe a little bit like Hadrian, with surprising results. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, will you do me two favors? First, will you give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use and write a few words about why you like the show? It really helps this show to reach more people, and ultimately that's what's going to make this a success. Second, do you want to see more episodes like this? then please support the podcast financially. Donating a few bucks will get you the exclusive bonus episodes from this series, episode nine, which covers Marcus's interesting interactions with the plebs, his lower class subjects. You can also submit questions for the Q&A episodes and you'll receive an ebook containing the entire story of Marcus's life as conveyed in this podcast in one sweet collection. Please go to patreon.com slash the turning wheel to make a donation. Thanks for listening and see you next time.